This week on the Faculty Factory Podcast. So this notion of someone recognizing your potential, I always thought it was peculiar when people would say that they could spot talent or they could see something in you that other people couldn't. I always thought, who knows me better than myself? How can they see something in me that I can't see? But now that I am in in the position that I'm in, I realize that I can actually spot that talent. I can see things in other people that they don't see in themselves. Uh And it is an interesting phenomenon to try and inspire and empower and encourage those people. A big part of what we do in faculty development and in faculty affairs is that kind of work and actually convince them that they can you know, aspire to positions of leadership, other positions. And this is particularly true for women. Women tend to be less sure of themselves. It has to do with how we enculturate women, how girls grow up in our society. And so I find this an interesting phenomenon to watch at this time. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Archie Chatterjee, the Senior Associate Dean of Faculty Development at the University of South Dakota Sanford School of Medicine and the Chair of Department of Pediatrics. Good morning, Archie. How are you doing there in South Dakota? Good morning, Kim. It is a beautiful fall day here, and we are doing just fine. What is the temperature up there? I mean, you guys don't get snow like real soon, do you? I've never been to South Dakota. You should come and visit. It is a beautiful (laughs) place to visit, especially the western part of the state where we have the monuments, you know, Mount Rushmore and and other places to visit there. Um, The temperature today, I think the high is supposed to be like 78 or something. Well, thanks for, um, you know, talking with us, Archie. You know, these these podcasts of proven to be pretty um pretty good. I mean, people seem to be really liking them. We've had over 3,200 downloads and 20 countries listening in. And just the stories have been really incredible. And I know, I remember when I first started coming to the AAMC GFA Group on Faculty Affairs Professional Conferences, I remember seeing you years ago, and you seem to know everybody and you always are willing to get a conversation started after a you know presentation and and inspire everybody to think and have come up with some really good good questions challenging questions and i've always admired you and your strong voice for faculty so um why don't you share with us your story how in the world did you know you i know your backgrounds in pediatrics and i think um infectious diseases as well how did you land in uh, faculty development Well, thank you, first of all, for those very kind words. As you said, I um, am a pediatric infectious diseases specialist, and um, the way I got into the world of faculty affairs and faculty development was through some initial struggles that I had as a junior faculty member. Um, What happened was that I was an assistant professor. I uh, had been in that role at Creighton for about nine months when my mentor, who happened to be my division chief, as well as my chair, Dr. Steve Chartrand, passed away suddenly. What that led to, yeah, it was very sad. It was terrible for his family as well as uh, as for us. What that led to then was my taking over uh, many of his duties, which included his clinical responsibilities, 
So my clinical responsibilities went up by about 50%. A lot of his teaching responsibilities and his 13 clinical trials that he was PI on. 13? Um, I had been, that is correct, um, overnight. And I had been a bench researcher before that happened. So for me to switch from the bench to taking on all these clinical trials was a real struggle. Um, And so I was fortunate to have some good mentors at the time who helped me through that time. But as you might imagine, it was a very, very difficult time. Um, As I look back on it now, I see that it was also an opportunity. And um, I was able to develop my career actually um, based on that. Um, The clinical trials were mostly for vaccines, and I have basically become a vaccinologist as a result of participating in those and future trials that came my way and doing a lot of advocacy work in the world of vaccines. A lot of my writing um, publications, I've published a book um, that is um, all related to vaccines. And so um, I also went through the academic ranks uh, of promotion to associate and for professor. And, you know, I was so busy at the time. I really didn't pause to even think about very much my career or anything like that. It was just sort of going, you know. Um, And then when I got to um, becoming a full professor, I realized that this had been in many ways an unnecessary struggle, um, that there were steps along the way that could have been made easier, could have uh, been smoothed over. And that's really what got me interested in helping other um, faculty members, particularly early career faculty members, so that they didn't have to have the same kinds of struggle that I had faced. So what were some, can you, do a couple of those struggles stick in your head or at the topmost of your mind that you remember? Because I'm sure if we all pause, we could think of, you know, lots of hurdles and things. But I'm curious, like, what really stuck in your head or got you um, that little bee in the bonnet that made you say, wait a minute, no, I have to fix this. Because some, many of the things we just kind of like, eh, that's just a system. What are you going to do about it? You roll with it. You get over it. I can't do anything about it. That's just the way things are. So can you remember like one or two of those struggles that made you kind of slam your fist on the table? I'm mad as heck and I'm not going to take it anymore. Uh, Well, I would just mention one, and this was a conflict that arose with another faculty member. Uh, This happened to be someone in a position of power who um, wanted to really direct everything that I was doing. And um, thinking back on it, I realized that um, that was a very, very difficult time Um, the people who should have been in my court, if you will, um, were trying but were ineffective. Mm. Uh, And I I won't say too much more, but um, this is fairly recent history. It's not that old. And the players uh, are are quite well known, actually. But this is not an uncommon thing that happens where a junior faculty member is struggling uh, and people are really not... Uh, effective in helping them out of that situation. Mm. And so I had to pretty much figure this out for myself. What did help me was having external mentors, people who were not at the institution, who gave me guidance and support and still remain uh, my mentors to this day. And I'm very grateful for that guidance and support. You mentioned the AAMC and uh, actually many of those mentors um, 
I um, came in touch with through uh, the Association of American Medical Colleges uh, and the Group on Faculty Affairs. Uh, and these were people who were dealing with these types of situations in their own institutions. So they had a lot of experience and they were able to guide me very well based on that. You're right. That, that's, so, that's such an important message for everyone listening out there. So often we, um, th- these conferences come up and the abstract announcements come out and you think, oh, I want to go. And sometimes maybe the back of your head, it's always, oh, I'm so busy. There's so much going on here. I can't possibly leave the office. We don't have the budget to support this. And we uh, engage in conversations that maybe talk us out of doing this. But gosh, if, if, if nothing else, that networking and support of having people who are like you dealing with bullies and difficult cultures and challenges that you think, how come I'm the only one who gets, who gets this here at my own institution? Well, you go to these big conferences and you realize I'm not alone in this. And, and that's so important what you just said, that sometimes it's really sticky at our home institutions to deal with these institutional people who've been there forever and people don't want to ruffle any feathers. Well, um, that's great advice you'll get um, from people at the conferences on this is how how you might want to handle this. So if anything, the social support and the camaraderie and just the the feeling of being known and understood and valued at, at, that, at our conferences is really um, can't be underestimated. I agree. You put that beautifully. Thank you. So, okay, you have, you, you have these struggles, you were, here you are, 13 clinical trials, um, becoming skilled in vaccinology and becoming an advocate, and then realizing these, these struggles as a junior faculty were, you know, unnecessary and that you could probably uh, make some change. So how did you uh, end up getting into the uh, faculty affairs or faculty development office? So this is, you know, one of those crossroads that happens sometimes in our careers. And there's somebody standing at those crossroads directing you. Uh, That happened to be Dr. Roberta Sonino, who is one of my mentors as well. And she was our faculty affairs dean at Creighton at the time, um, a very uh, accomplished uh, individual herself, um, who took me under her wing uh, and began advising me. And one of the things that she advised me to do, I think she saw the leadership potential. That's all I can say, Uh, because she advised me to apply for um, the executive leadership and academic medicine program uh, at Drexel, the ELAM program, um, which has trained many, many women leaders. Um, I think there's more than a thousand of us now. Um, And so uh, I was fortunate enough to be um, selected for that program. It is a very selective program. Yeah, we had Nancy Spector. We talked to her on the the podcast. She's great. Nancy Spector is the current director of the program, yes. And so I um, had this year-long leadership training program through which I met, again, some powerful and amazing women leaders from across the country, um, some of whom remain my friends um, today, and are peer mentors and and colleagues that I value tremendously. Um, So that (laughs) kind of got me into this um, mindset of thinking of myself as a leader. Uh, And when I completed that program, uh, actually Dr. Sanino moved on to a different position and I was offered uh, a position in the Dean's office as an assistant Dean for faculty affairs uh, at the completion of my ELAM program. So that's what got me formally into the faculty affairs realm. 
I love how you said that, thinking of myself as a leader. And that's what Robin Ely, E-L-Y, I always forget how to say her name, um, talks about that leadership identity. And that is so critical that thinking of yourself as a leader um, is the first step. Oftentimes we think, I don't, I can't do that. Um, we're not even aware of opportunities and then, then uh, talking ourselves out of it or thinking we're not prepared or couldn't do it or don't like the way it looks currently and think, I don't want to do that without recognizing we can make leadership, you know, that um, looks like us and builds on our strengths. So I love that you had that awareness of thinking of yourself as a leader. So now you're an assistant dean. So then, so then what happened? I'll tell you what happened, but I want to make a point here. Oh, sure. Um, Yeah. So this notion of someone recognizing your, your potential um, I always thought it was peculiar when people would say um, that they could spot talent or they could see something in you that other people couldn't. I always thought, who knows me better than myself? How can they see something in me that I can't see? Mm. But now that I am in, in the position that I'm in, I realize that I can actually spot that talent. I can see things in other people that don't they don't see in themselves. Uh-huh. And it is, it is an interesting um, phenomenon to try and... Um, inspire and empower and encourage those people. A big part of what we do in faculty development and in faculty affairs is is that kind of work, and actually convince them that they can, you know, aspire to uh, positions of leadership, um, other positions. And this is particularly true for women. Women tend to be uh, less sure of themselves. It has to do with how we enculturate women, how girls grow up. Uh, in our society. And so um, I find this an interesting phenomenon uh, to watch at this time. So you asked what happened next. Um, So I um, remained uh, at Creighton and I was promoted actually to associate dean there. um, And I was, um, you know, going through uh, the usual work that we do in an academic affairs, faculty affairs office. Uh, Very happy with, with that work. And I was also continuing with my other duties um, on the clinical side with my research, teaching, etc. Uh, when my current position came open, the chair of pediatrics position opened up here in South Dakota. And a piece of the story that I didn't tell you was that I had actually been in South Dakota before I went back to Creighton. I trained at, at um, uh, Creighton in Nebraska, um, done my residency and fellowship there, At the end of that, I was recruited to South Dakota as my first faculty position. I wasn't here very long, about a year and a half, went back to Nebraska. And then I kept in touch with people up here. And when this position opened up, my friends were calling me and saying, you should come and look at this position. Mm. And really to please them more than anything else, I came up here to um, look at this position and I was blown away. There had been so much growth in the 13 years that I'd been gone. We had a new children's hospital. We had a new pediatric residency program. The department had grown tremendously. So I saw this growth, and I thought to myself, there is an opportunity for a lot of development here that perhaps I could help with. Mm-hmm. So I was recruited as chair of the Department of Pediatrics. Um, but when I came to interview, I looked at the school as a whole, We are a community-based medical school, which means that our clinical faculty are all employed by somebody else. The medical school does not employ them. 
um, which makes it quite a challenge to work with those faculty. The other thing is we have multiple campuses. Um, this is new in some schools, but we have always had multiple campuses from the inception of the school when it became a four-year school. We have had three clinical campuses and one preclinical campus. So that's another challenge um, to do faculty development across the state, really. In addition to that, we have what's called the farm program, the frontier and rural medicine program, where we have very small communities um, where students can do their 30-year clerkship uh, training. Uh, and again, we have faculty there as well, few numbers of faculty, you know, four or five faculty members in, in an office, perhaps. And so I saw this um, kind of opportunity to um, work on career development. When I talked to Dr. Tim Ridgway, who's our faculty affairs dean, uh, he also wears many other hats. He's our campus dean. He's a, an adult gastroenterologist. Um, so he said, you know, he really had not had the bandwidth to do much career development. We have been doing faculty development for teachers, of course. That's done through our medical education office. So I requested um, from the dean and got the opportunity to add this to my portfolio. Um, and so I came on board um, not only as the chair of pediatrics, um, where, of course, I have the usual responsibilities for my department, but also as the senior associate dean for faculty development for the entire medical school. Wow. Now, that is a, a huge lesson that really shows being proactive, the fact that you go up to South Dakota to look at this opportunity to be the chair of pediatrics and then request or, you know, investigate and be curious about faculty affairs and faculty development and and propose to, to tackle that as well. So I think that is a really important lesson that, uh, you know, taking the initiative to, as you said, you know, seeing yourself as a leader, that this is the position, this is wonderful, and I'd like this as well. So I think that is really uh, fantastic, and it's so typical of you being so courageous and modeling that courage to say yes and, and I'd like to do this as well. So I, I love that um, proactivity. Yeah, you know, um, I in my department here, um, there is a, a center, uh, the Center for Disabilities, that um, reports to me. Um, many universities have these, and I attend their meetings. We have a director who really does most of the work. My supervisory role is very minimal. But um, one thing I have learned from them is that uh, they have this concept of self-advocacy for people with disabilities. And I think it's a wonderful um, concept for us to adopt for our faculty to be self-advocates. Um, it's great to have mentors and sponsors and people who will um, help and support, but it's also important to be a self-advocate. So I think that this is an example, if you will, of that self-advocacy. Yeah, I love it. That's wonderful. I love that curiosity that that propelled you forward to obviously making an impact not only in peds, but um, for the whole school at large. So that's good vision. I was wondering if you could tell us more about this um, seeing talent in others. And I agree with you, Archie, and, and, I've, and I've really not thought about that much. But as you've, you, know, you said it, it's kind of just stuck in my head. And I wonder if it's a, a function of just having or part of it is high emotional intelligence or being, you know, empathetic. 
um, or just being like, you know, a diagnosticians or clinicians who end up seeing patterns and that we recognize a common pattern in people. But I recall when my aha moment was when I was back at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, when I started doing faculty development and a, a mentee was sitting in my office and talking about her career and what was happening and, and say there were like four components of things she was talking about. And I, I literally, as I was listening to her, maybe it's also maybe just attentive listening, as I was listening to her and watching her, it was so clear to me, item number three on the list of four, she just exploded in light and, and joy and just radiated energy. Her eyes just lit up. Her She became more animated and had a lot more physicality and just kind of had this this you know excitement about her and when she was done talking and and I and I said you know I you know like to give you some feedback if you don't mind right now and she said yeah and I and I told her what I had seen and I described the way she appeared to me when she was talking about these things and I said it wasn't until you got to item number three when you really you know you lit up and she said you're kidding. I said, no. And she said, you know, that, that really is, if I could do anything, I guess that would be it. And, and it was just such an aha moment to her and to me that I thought, just like when you said, well, how could anybody know me better than me? I think it was the same kind of a, a thing where I thought, well, how does she not know that she loves doing that? But she also, you know, was like, well, gosh, I do know, I do like to do that best and would prefer to do that. And so can you comment some more on how that uh, works for you and how you've experienced that seeing talent in others? The way I would put it, and I'll give you an example of this here in a minute, Kim, but the way I would put it is it's a little bit like someone holding up a mirror to you, okay? Because you know who you are and what you probably look like, but you really don't know what you look like until you look in a mirror. And sometimes it takes that other person to hold up that mirror to you to show you what you really look like. So the example I will give you, and um, again, I have to be a little careful because I want to protect the innocent, but uh, I have done this actually with many people. But this is, this is a particular example that I'm very proud of. So this is an individual in my department uh, who I have actually known for a very long time. Um, she was here when I was here before, and when I came back, uh, she had advanced a little bit in her career, but not a great deal. And I got talking to her, and I um, noted that she seemed to have some ideas um, that could potentially uh, lead her into a leadership position. So. Um, one of the things I recommended to her, she was about mid-career by this time, was to attend um, the AAMC's Mid-Career Women's um, Faculty Leadership yeah. um, Development Program, which is a fantastic program. The two programs that AAMC runs for early career and mid-career women are absolutely fantastic. And so I um, recommended this program to her, and uh, she's a busy mom, you know, had small children at the time. Um, was hesitant to go, but I said, um, make time, because I think this will be useful. It's three or four days. It's not a long period of time. So finally, she agreed to go. She didn't go the first year, but she went the second year. And uh, it's 
a little bit of exaggeration to say she came back a changed person, but definitely her perspective changed through that process. And, mm-hmm. and so when she came back, she said, okay, now I know what you've been trying to talk to me about um, with regard to leadership. And so um, a position came open um, for which I, within the department, which I um, asked her to apply for, and she was selected to go into that leadership position. She still holds that position and has done a really fantastic job in that role. Um, So then uh, a few months, maybe a year or so later, um, there was another leadership position now open at the medical school level. And she came to talk to me and said, what do you think about my applying to this position? And I said to myself, success, because now she is seeing herself as a leader. And so um, she actually um, applied for and was appointed to that position and has been doing a fabulous job in that role. And this is so timely because she contacted me yesterday and said, I'd like to talk to you about another step in my leadership journey, and can I come talk to you about that? And so she's coming this afternoon to talk to me about that. So I think at first it seems like, uh, a little bit of a struggle to to get people to start thinking along these lines. But once they do, you know, we are dealing with very, very highly intelligent, motivated, um, fantastic people mm-hmm. among our faculty. And so it's just giving them that little bit of a, a push, if you will. And then they're, they're off to the races, most of them. That's right. That's right. Oh, well, thank you for sharing that story. I, I love it. I think we all have, you know, those same kind of goosebump stories that really make you feel like, geez, if I do nothing else, that, that, that kind of made my day. It's um, that mentorship, that connection, that personal relationship building. And yeah, I love, I love it. You're inspire, encourage, empower. That, that's exactly a good example of that. So can you tell us, um, like, what, what kinds of things are happening in faculty development in your office? Uh, do you have uh, leadership programs and I imagine the full gamut of orientation and um, any, any new kinds of seminars or workshops or things you're uh, Im- implementing for your faculty there in Sanford School of Medicine? Sure. So, uh, you know, we all tend to, to carry on doing what we know to do. So when I came here... I brought with me a lot of experience from Creighton, and I started to try to implement what I had done there. And very quickly, I realized I'm in a different place, different culture, and we have these faculty that are scattered across the state. I'm no longer dealing with the faculty who are really just here on site. So I've got to think differently. So I took a lot of the materials that I had used for career development, for onboarding, et cetera, to a very talented person that we have in our leadership team, Dr. Jason Chemnitz. He is um, our assistant dean for faculty development. And um, Jason has a very interesting background. So he's, he's a communications guy. Um, he has an EDD, he has an education background and a communications background. And so he's very facile at taking our materials, um, which are you know boring old PowerPoints, and turning them into interactive modules. And so that's what he did with, so the content is provided by us, but then he takes that material and he turns these into these modules, which are online, they are on our website. And um, 
that's how we provide um, ongoing faculty development to our faculty that are scattered across the state. Wow. And like you said, you know, other people have access to these materials too. So initially these were behind our portal. And then we started talking about it and saying, there's nothing on here that we shouldn't have the rest of the world look at if they want to. So we pushed everything in front of the portal now. And anybody anywhere across the country and across the world really can have access to it through our website. Wow. Did everybody hear that? Go to the University of South Dakota Sanford School of Medicine website and look for all their interactive online faculty development modules. What kinds of things are there, Archie? So there are things like, you know, um, how to um, build your portfolio, how to to, um, apply for promotion, how to prepare your dossier, you know, things like that. Pretty standard stuff that we do for our faculty, except it's it's in the form of these interactive modules. Wow. That's a great resource. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that tidbit. Sure. Now, how do you, with, with having such, you know, these three remote campuses, how do you build community? Do you have any... Um, is the culture there where there's sense of identity and we-ness and belonging? Or on the flip side, are you worried about burnout? Or is there something that is unique to having these campuses that are spread out that makes you, um, that they're especially resilient? Or does it, um, you know, bode like a threat to uh, the, the mission when everybody doesn't really... They're so spread out, they really don't ever run into each other in the hallway or in the kitchen. That's that's actually a major issue for us, and that's something um, that um, our dean, Dr. Mary Nettleman, as well as the rest of her leadership team, all of us really think about this all the time, um, is how to make our school feel unified, even though we are separated by geography. Uh, and one of our campuses is actually in a different time zone. <laughs> we, you know, we are in oh this large state geographically, so it makes things very, very difficult to do um, synchronous programming for faculty development, which is why we developed these asynchronous um, modules. Um, so one of the things we do is we pay visits to those campuses. Um, we do these individually as well as collectively, um, we have an administrative council that consists of all of the chairs and all of the deans. And actually, we are going to go out to our Rapid City campus here next week um, to visit with the faculty and the students there. The dean makes regular visits uh, to all of the campuses. And um, as I said, individually, several of us go out to the different campuses as well. So this is a way um, that we have of staying in touch of hopefully trying to help people feel like they are part of the medical school. Having said that, I think these campuses um, are very uh, well organized and and unified um, on their own. And we kind of recognize that. So uh, one of the things we try to do is to support and encourage programming on the individual campuses themselves. And that is a little bit harder to do. So one of the things we did, um, I did when I got here, was uh, to propose a women in medicine and science program. Um, It did not exist here when I came. Um, Creighton had a very active program, so I had a lot of experience with that. And um, when I talked to our dean, um, one of the things um, I found out was that one of our areas of uh, diversity that 
we wanted to focus on was actually women. And the reason was because we were below the national average for the proportion of women who were in on our faculty and the proportion of women who were in senior academic ranks. Sure. So um, the dean charged me with this to say, this is something that I would like you to work on. We had LCME coming in 2017, so we had three or four years to work on this. So I proposed a women in medicine and science program. Um, I talked to the, some of the faculty. Um, we had a pediatric surgeon at the time, Dr. Adela Casasmelli, who was very keen um, on um, establishing this program, served as our initial chair. And so we were able to, with some support from the dean's office, she provided some funding for it. We were able to establish this program, which has been phenomenally successful. And we have actually published some of the uh, results uh, of our um, program. Um, we were able to increase the proportion of our faculty who are women. We were able to advance women more into higher academic ranks. And something that we have already ha we already had, which was um, actually a fairly large proportion of women in leadership, we were able to sustain and even advance that. Um, so this was going very well on the Sioux Falls campus, but the dean a couple of years ago challenged me and said, this is going great on our campus. How about you expand this to the other campuses? That was a little bit harder because now it would take people on those campuses being willing to step up, and they're not people I had strong relationships with. I didn't actually know many of them at all. So it was trying to build those, and again, we found champions, and we now have active programs on our Rapid City campus as well as our Yankton campus, the other two clinical campuses. Uh, so we're, we're very pleased to have been able to put this program in place and make it work across uh, all of our campuses. A couple of features about our Women in Medicine and Science program which I think are unique and are very good. The first is when we got started, one of the things they wanted to do from the get-go was to include students. Most Women in medicine and science programs across the country are primarily faculty focused. Sometimes at Creighton we used to say, well, bring a learner along, you know, bring a resident, bring a student, something like that, but they're really not focused on the students. Whereas from the get-go, these folks wanted to do that. And so we have a close connection to our students and our students are on our student committee, et cetera. We have not only medical students, but graduate students, postdocs who are engaged. So it's, it's really very, very nice to see that, you know, across the learning spectrum happen. Um, the other thing that we have done that is fairly unique is from the get-go, invited men to be part of our program. Um, this is always hard, and we're learning this nationally now, that we need male allies. We, the people who are in positions of power are mostly men, and they're the ones who are going to be able to help us advance the careers of women. So we need those male allies. But we started off from the get-go engaging men and inviting them. And as it happens in most places, you know, not a lot of men do come to our programs, but they do come. And this year we are very pleased to actually have one of our male faculty members on our steering committee. So slowly we have we have uh, grown this, and people have have learned that while our events are sponsored by the Women in Medicine and Science, that they're meant for all faculty, all students, all learners. That is fascinating that you were able to get that message out and communicate that so that it becomes part of the the culture there. So I, I yeah, I can't imagine 
our Office of Women in Science and Medicine, that would take a huge effort to change that culture and and really message that so that it was clear that men are welcome too. We we struggle with this at Hopkins all the time as well. That it's you know we're preaching to the choir that when we have all these women's programs, it's uh it's the the sweet and the sour that the women enjoy the intimacy, the safety, uh, the collegiality of the homogeneity that we're all women, that we, we get this, we understand this, and yet inevitably that discussion always comes up, where are the men? Uh, they need to, to hear this, we want to hear from them, we're all in this together, and so I agree with you, Archie, that this is, especially with the the, the advancing generation, the the younger folks behind us, this is becoming more, I think, commonplace to all be on the same page. So I bet you we're going to see more and more of co-ed uh, programs. So I, I think you're, you're right on that. So I'd like to say a little bit more about yeah, this, if I may, Kim. Um, as you know, we haven't talked much about this, but I um, have been on the GWIMS, um, the WMC's GWIMS um, steering committee for several years. I'm the, currently the past chair. And I credit Dr. Liz Travis um, for really making that group um, think about the importance of male allyship. Uh, it was when, when she was uh, the chair a few years ago that she brought this to our attention and said, you know, it's great that we, we talk about um, the importance of advancing women, that is our mission. However, we are in an echo chamber. I think that is Liz's term for it. And uh, I think she's, she's done this at her own institution, uh, MD Anderson um, Cancer Center, and, and she brought that experience to the GWIMS. And so we um, very thoughtfully um, have recruited two uh, wonderful gentlemen who serve on our steering committee, Dr. Terry Flatt, who is the Council of Deans representative, liaison to the GWIMS, um, has been a, a phenomenal person to have on because we think about things differently. As women, we think differently <coughs> excuse me, than men do. And so um, to have him on there uh, talking about what is going on um, with the COD, et cetera, and giving his perspective has been critical. The other person we have on is Dr. John Cullen, from um, the University of Rochester. And again, John brings um, a scientific as well as the male perspective uh, to us. And so having these two gentlemen on that steering committee, I can't tell you how valuable it is to us um, to have, have their knowledge and their expertise um, and their thoughts about advancing women. And so I think this is a wave that is coming. Uh, it, it has already come in some places and the more we can do uh, the better it will be uh, for for us, for our mission of advancing both men and women um, into these uh, positions of leadership. You're right, uh, because it's all about diversity, right? We all know that the more diverse people are at your table, the better the ideas, the more creativity, the more, you know, the solutions pop up differently uh, depending on who's sitting at the table. Diversity in every facet, not only gender and ethnicity and age and role and science, all those, all those elements um, bring a unique perspective. So I think 
yeah, it, it's diversity in every form and fashion and way that will open up uh, and new new discoveries, new approaches, new uh, ways of thinking if we have different people at the table. So I, I think you're right. Can you tell us a little bit more? How do you grow these champions? How do you grow influencers? So you mentioned, you know, inviting these two men on your steering committee, but that you've, I think you, you know, you've, uh, um, you've not given yourself enough credit for this of building that culture, especially coming new to a new institution with maybe, uh, you know, of course you had been there before, but a lot of people there probably weren't aware of you or didn't know you. How do we, um, as maybe some new faculty development, faculty affairs people out there, or anyone going to a new institution, how do you, uh, how do you balance that sensitivity to knowing and appreciating and learning a new culture with these little nudges to grow champions and grow influencers and to and to um, inspire, encourage, empower people to think and do differently. Where's that balance? And it sounds like you just do it naturally, but can you think about how you would do that operationally and what advice you'd give to somebody else who who wants to walk that line and, and um, appreciate history and tradition and yet also uh, embrace something new and different? How did you do it? I think what I'll do is um, give you a resource that might be helpful to the listeners. Um, there is a um, toolkit that uh, a couple of colleagues and I developed for the GWIMS. It is on the GWIMS website. There's actually a whole series of toolkits, as you know, that might be beneficial to your audience. So they might want to go out and check on that on the WMC GWIMS website. But this is on career transitions. And um, there are a lot of uh, important messages um, that are there in that toolkit, but the one that I will focus on is something that you alluded to, which is the culture. It is critically important to learn the new culture. Um, You know, you've heard the adage, you've seen one medical school, you've seen one medical school, and it is perfectly true. And since I was in Nebraska for almost 20 years, I could see that actually between the two medical schools that are in Omaha, they are about 10 blocks apart, and they could be worlds apart in terms of culture. One's a private school, one's a public school, a very, very different cultures. And so I think it is critical for anyone who goes to a new institution or even into a new role within the institution because we have microcultures, right? That's right. That are, That's yeah, that are unique to that unit or that uh, organization that you are part of. So learning that culture is very, very important. Um, And, you know, being open, you mentioned listening and active listening earlier. I think that is very critical um, to be open and willing to listen and also to not be disappointed if your initial ideas are not accepted. Sometimes, you know, you have to rework the idea and make it align with the culture, and then it will work. Um, so those are just some of the the tactics that I have successfully used in bringing some of my ideas to fruition at this institution. Mm, I love it. That's a really good... The GWIMS, folks, um, is the Group on Women in Medicine and Science. And I love um, 
the culture toolkit there. Yeah, we're definitely going to go check out those toolkits. But I'm really um, intrigued now more about this microcultures. We don't we haven't really talked about that much on the podcast, but that is really important, Archie. I love that message that this um, this skill can be utilized even at your own home institution and. And you will do yourself a great service uh, if we are sensitive and attuned to the fact that even a little shift within a department or a division or a school, uh, we can't make assumptions. And uh, you're exactly right. That that's that's a really fascinating concept. Thank you. The other thing to remember, Kim, is that culture is not static. It is a dynamic thing, and so it changes. You know. You have a group of people, you bring one new person into that group, and that culture changes. And so being cognizant of that, being aware of that, I'm very pleased to see now all of the um, focus that people are placing on um, helping people understand personalities. Uh, My daughter just started medical school, and uh, she told me that they have a wellness program, and one of the first things they do is um, they... uh, MBTI, you know, the Myers-Briggs, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was talking to our residents and they told me they had recently had a retreat and one of the things, activities they did was the Myers-Briggs. So I think we are, I didn't do my Myers-Briggs until I went to Elon. So uh, I think we are paying attention early on, helping people understand the differences in personalities, the differences in, in cultures and that, um, they have to adapt and and be able to work with all of these people that are coming from from different backgrounds and different cultures. Uh, And that's not necessarily um, when you move from one institution to another, but it can actually be within your own institution. That's right. That's fascinating. So this has been, I've learned a lot. Is there anything else you want to share with us, Archie? Anything new or exciting or any tidbits or Last bits of wisdom you want to drop on us here at the uh, Faculty Factory podcast? I I don't think so, Kim. I just want to thank you again for inviting me to participate. I think this has been a wonderful conversation, and um, I have enjoyed um, sharing what little knowledge and expertise I have with you and with your audience, hopefully, and I hope that this will be helpful um, to someone who's out there. That's I, I'm absolutely positive of it. You've um, you've given us a lot to think about, some tools to go explore, and um, I'm going to be thinking about a lot of these things moving forward. Folks, you've been listening to Dr. Archie Chatterjee, the Senior Associate Dean of Faculty Development, University of South Dakota, Sanford School of Medicine. She is also the Chair of the Pediatrics Department. Archie, thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.